Welcome to Back in the Field. My name is Carl. And my name is Arthi. And today we're going to be talking about Halloween. So before we get started, I just want to say we just launched this past week and it was amazing. You guys are phenomenal. Thank you so much for the positive response. We really hope you've been enjoying the podcast so far. And we're sorry if five weeks from now this is a little late to be thanking you. But there's only so fast we can respond to anything, really. We live in a very slow information age. <laughs> or perhaps it's that we decided to record a bunch of these episodes ahead of time, and so now we're only just now catching up. Planning? Planning! Yeah, planning! I really don't believe we planned anything. We sort of planned some stuff. If you say so. I swear we did. Plus, like, this way... I mean, the way our episode release schedule is going to work out, we'll actually finish just as the season starts. So that's pretty cool. I forget how we're going to do that. We're doubling up on certain episodes. Oh, right. Magic. Magic. Pretend like you didn't hear that. We're not doubling up. Shh. We'll <laughs> definitely edit this one out. No, we won't. <laughs> yeah. So this episode is Halloween, which is next chronologically. And um, we'll talk. A let's talk about what happens in this episode. So the A-plot is that Jake is trying to steal Holt's Medal of Valor from his office. While over in the B-plot, uh, Amy and Boyle are investigating various Halloween-related crimes, which Amy hates. Yes, Amy really hates Halloween. Not that I can really blame her, honestly, but we'll get to that. And then the C-plot is that Terry is trying to figure out uh, why Rosa didn't finish high school. And she's just trying to not tell him in order to maintain an air of dangerous mystery. Yes. And then, of course, Hitchcock and Scully are sort of around, and Gina's been helping out Jake on and off in the A-plot. So that's kind of what everyone's up to in this episode. I think this is probably one of the first episodes where we really see a very delineated A, B, and C plot um, that don't really seem to touch. Mm, right. You know, the way that the A, B, and C plot don't really touch, I think that this episode has a timeline problem. You know what? I think you're right because Jake says by midnight tonight, and I'm not sure if those numbers actually add up when you think about it. Well, I don't know if it's about numbers, but if we think about it, so Boyle and Amy go out when it's just about sundown, like it's it's dusk, from the, we can tell from the lighting. Then they get egged and come back, and they meet up with Jake, and he's still trying to do the thing. Then they go back to the party, and entire thing of midnight goes past and then they have like a halloween party after midnight and then go back to work like are they really doing that i don't think they do go back to work though they do go back to work because at the very end uh rosa and terry are in costume and he's at his desk doing paperwork oh you're right even though he like or doing something it can't be paperwork because holt is doing everyone's paperwork because jake was supposed to do everyone's paperwork yeah no, you're right. Also, like, when did Jake have time to give his Braveheart-style speech? Like, I don't think... I don't think the hours add up. Well, what I really wonder about is how Amy came back to take part in the heist when she was busy... How both Amy and Boyle were, like, not in costume and doing the heist thing. I, I have no idea if, if this works in a linear line. Well, it works if the part with Boyle and Amy in Holt's office... Those two different scenes take place after Amy had paid Hitchcock 50 bucks to take her place. But Boyle's also in that scene. He's out. No, no, those are different, different times entirely. Yeah, because Terry is the one who lowers Amy into Holt's office. Yeah, but I feel like Amy would have been like, I was helping Jake. And then Boyle would have bought it immediately. 
instead of in instead of saying I hate Halloween and you suck. Well, I, I think I think the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. I think because she hated Halloween and had already paid off Hitchcock, she was the one who got picked to be lowered into the office. Mm, true. Because Terry couldn't have been lowered into the office. No one could have. No one has the strength. Yeah. It really didn't matter who was lowered into the office. Ostensibly, Terry also, could Terry lower them. Also, Terry was doing the lowering. I think we see that. Yeah, yeah, we do. We see him with the rope. What is that rope ha- ha- like? Pull- what is the pulley on that rope? Because obviously, the ceiling is not strong enough to hold Jake's weight. So how can it hold Amy on a pulley system? I think that the bottom of the the actual ceiling tile is going to be made of much flimsier material than like the, the beams or whatever. Structure. We're overthinking this considerably. Well, we've got to give ourselves something to do. We don't. We didn't end up liking this episode as much as we thought we did. I think. Well, I think it's more. So let's talk about our criticisms. I think one of the big things that was really tough about this episode for us is that. I I enjoyed this when I was watching it for the first time. When I was watching it with an eye for like sort of a critical perspective, I found I didn't enjoy it as much, but mostly because it's just not as snappy. And coming right after The Vulture, which is basically like very little downtime, it's all kind of uptime in The Vulture, this was sort of, it was almost a breather episode by comparison. It was very slow paced. The scenes kind of went on too long. And, you know, I think another possible explanation is they probably spent a lot of money on like costuming and effects for this episode, but no, actually, I think you're right because like the episodes where the special effects were high in Doctor Who were the ones where the writing was often the weakest. Maybe that might be what happened. I don't know. They probably have the same writers on commission one way or another. That's true, but like sometimes maybe this episode just got made faster. Like, it's possible. We talk about that with um, Broken Feather. Yeah, that one got made really fast. Yeah, because that was a surprise. Like done, huh? I will never stop wishing that the bet had been the Super Bowl episode. That would have been better. Like, I know why it wasn't, but I will never stop wishing it was. That's all. Anyway. The holiday season kind of packed them together, didn't it? Because they did... This is episode This is episode six. In the first nine episodes, they did three holidays. Mm-hmm. Like, a third of their programming was, was holiday programming, which I've been noticing with a lot of shows I watch recently. Like, you get a comedy, and you're like, okay, some stuff is happening, some stuff is happening. Three episodes in a row of holiday wackiness, <laughs> season after season. And you're like, wow, the nature of the calendar is oppressive in terms of what kind of stories you can tell. It's funny because I don't think I noticed it with Friends. But Friends also, here's a funny fact. Friends is actually long seasons for a comedy. Nowadays, comedies maybe run 24 episodes, but most shows in general run 22. Friends is consistently 10 seasons of 26 episodes apiece. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if Brooklyn Nine-Nine had four more episodes in its season? I mean, I could imagine that. We would have started the podcast later and we could never, ever have completed it in time. But like... I think a lot of shows, not just comedies, used to be that way. Like, I think Star Trek The Next Generation had really long seasons for hour-long programming. Law & Order, I think, was 24 episodes per season for a long time. I think only after, towards the end of its run, did it switch down to a 22-episode season. Honestly, a 26 or a 13-episode season for a drama makes much more sense. Here's why. 52 weeks in the year breaks out into four equal quarters of 13 weeks. Hmm. That's why Friends actually worked really well. Because if you if you think about if you go back and look at the release, uh, not the release schedule, the air dates for Friends, they spaced out super nicely between September and May. Huh. It was basically it was basically three weeks on, one week off, which for those actors meant that they were basically working 
two and a half weeks every month. They probably found something else to do with their time, but... Uh... A lot of them did movies. And David Sherman was definitely directing. Anyway, <laughs> back on topic. Uh, we do talk about... We, we both were talking when we, when we were specking out this episode about there's just a general lack of energy, really, which is weird because we have no less than a heist plot line, a scene in a nightclub, and like... A fire. There's a fire. There's a friggin' fire. There's a horse fight. There's a banana with an exploding briefcase full of money. There's a ton of gags about costumes, which I love. And by the way, with the banana with the money in the door, if you watch, the bystanders behind Jake are all chuckling at his, like, shitty puns. Like, I was laughing at his shitty puns. Like, they're not shitty. I'm just being rude. But, no, like, they're really bad. Oh, they're, but they're like, they're like dad jokes. They're like great, terrible. They're one terrible, as I like to say. Why, why wonderful, like, terrible. Why do you like to say that? Wonderful, terrible. No, I know what it means, but why do you like to say it? Because I love portmanteaus. Or I love mantos. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just that's kidding. Not, that's not okay. <laughs> I just love That's not a wordplay. That's just a sentence <laughs> with fewer things in it. Oh. America. Anyway. What? No. <laughs> Don't blame this. <laughs> on our cultural monolith, this is you, Arthur. This is you. I feel like I feel like half these episodes are Carl just giving me shit for something. I'm sure you guys enjoy this. I don't mind it because Carl, Carl, and me, we go way back, and by way back, I mean back to September. <laughs> anyway, back on topic. There's there's some really high moments in this episode, and honestly, when I when I turn off my like critical filter watching this episode, because I've watched this like three times in preparation for this for this podcast, because I'm a crazy person. But when I was watching this with my critical lens on, I found I didn't enjoy it as much. But when I was watching it with sort of my appreciation of comedy lens on, I really enjoyed this episode. It's a funny, funny episode. The beats are really on target. It's just that from a purely like 22 minutes of TV critical perspective, there's a lack of energy too often. And I think what you said earlier about the scenes going on a little too long too often might kind of be what it is. It's um it's funny that you said that because I was I was listening to I've I've linked this before in our in our Tumblr queue, but like the uh the episode of The Nerdist where Andy Samberg is being interviewed by Chris Hardwick is super great. You should all go listen to it. But they talk about one of the hardest things about writing in comedy, whether it's sketch or honestly, it sounds like in sitcom too, is letting go of the bit. Because in a lot of ways, this episode is like a series of bits that sort of all connect to each other. I think in this episode, the writing team got enamored of seeing some of the newer interactions that we hadn't seen before, like play out. And so the scenes go on just a touch too long, which are great for character development, but not for like a pure like keeping the comedy rhythm going. After this episode, because I've been watching ahead a little bit, after this episode, they fix that. And in fact, the next several episodes are just like energy, energy, energy. Like the the pacing is much better. But this one is a weird like weak spot. And it's not that any of the jokes are unfunny. It's just that they take too long to do them. And they've got like extra stuff. Like if they, they don't need to set up as much as they're setting up. They don't need to take a, as long to make each point. They just... It's too much like real conversation. <laughs> it doesn't feel it's not scripted enough. Like, is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, comedy should feel like an idealized conversation that you've cut all the boring bits out of. I don't think that 
Brooklyn Nine-Nine if ever in danger of seeming overly scripted and too divorced from, like, real dialogue. Like, no. But aside from that, you're right. They're, this is clearly a scripted comedy. And, like, everyone on the show comes from a scripted environment. I don't think any of them come from strong... I mean, there's, they're doing improv from time to time, but most of them are doing scripted work forever. Yeah. My impression is that Andy has more of a background in, like, sloppy scripted work. Uh, <laughs> that's, like, you know, SNL does not get to do a number of, audition, like, rehearsals, right? Like... SNL is... Tuesday night is... So I read the book. So SNL, the way the schedule is, is Tuesday night is the all-night write-in, or lock-in of writing... Then Wednesday afternoon, they do the first read-through where they do board or, or board or scrap. Anything that ends up on the board is sent to props who put the stuff together, like Wednesday night and Thursday morning. They do first rehearsals on Thursday. They do more rehearsals on Friday. Lauren Michaels, who's the EP, he like will watch the sets and see what goes in, what stays, what goes, um, until dress on Saturday Dress on Saturday is the first show. They do that usually around, like, dinner time. Uh, after dress, uh, Lauren will one one last time futz with the scheduling, and then they go to air. So basically, whatever is written on, when, on Tuesday night or Wednesday goes into air on Saturday night. That's also true for the digital shorts sometimes. If... That that same Nerdist interview that I mentioned earlier, he talked about how there are some of those digital shorts that they did that were basically, like, written Thursday night, filmed Friday, edited Friday night, and, like, like put into post on Saturday to air Saturday night. Like, that's really crazy if you really think about it. Like, imagine doing, like, one of your high school shitty homemade video projects in about seven hours. And and it has to look like A-grade material in seven hours. Like, that's crazy. But yeah, so he's, it, it, you're right. In some ways, it's like, it's sloppy scripting. It's, <laughs> they're professionals, but they're still basically putting to air their first draft. And that's crazy if you think about it. Like, I publish a lot of fan fiction that's, like, not that fully edited. And Jesus Christ, like, that's not, like... That's like a passion project. That's not like my job. I would never put my first draft up for my job. That's crazy talk. Like I do a lot of content production for my for my day job. And holy shit. Anyway, back back on topic. We talked a lot about how the energy is missing. I think part of it though is that the crux of the the middle of the episode, the crux of it is the Amy Boyle dynamic and that's not a strong and I think that really kind of bleeds out into the rest of the episode. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about what is the problem with the Amy Boyle dynamic. And I'm not convinced it's... We were originally thinking that they didn't have a good flow, but I don't think that's actually it. They are not at any point focused on each other in this script. Amy is always focused entirely on how she hates Halloween and just wants to do her job and get it over with. And Boyle is in like half the scenes more interested in the people who are talking to amy than amy like he supports jake when when they're bickering and you're right i hadn't thought about that but actually my bra is not hot boobs go in a bra and then he high fives jake and that's all he does in that scene you're right and then they have to go back out and work together like they wrote Boyle as like being really not at all supportive while also cajoling Amy into 
trying to enjoy something that he's not making any better. Like, no wonder we don't like that pairing, right? Yeah, it's kind of the, the negativity Ouroboros there. An Ouroboros is a snake that is eating its own tail. It is a classic symbol of eternity. Thanks. You've informed people of a lot of things today. I really have. I needed to get in there. No. Well, okay. As an aside, I've been, I feel like the edit episodes I edit, maybe this is by on purpose, but I feel like the episodes I end up editing are like you heavy. And then oh. like, maybe you're getting out the episodes that are me heavy. I have no idea. I have no idea either. That'd be weird though, if that was what was happening. That's definitely not what's happening this episode because I'm editing this one. So, like, one way or another, the Boyle-Amy pairing comes into fruition in the middle, and the first half in general, including that middle, is much weaker than the second half. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that could have been avoided on the part of the cast, because there's the, the weak writing for Amy Boyle, and Jake's entire thing in the first half is just set up for his actual plan, where he's doing some actually dim-witted schemes to try to get the metal. Like, crawling God. crawling through the ceiling. But, like, not just crawling through the ceiling, responding. Like, dude, come on! This... Okay, I... If you haven't seen the finale yet, like, stop listening. <laughs> like, just skip ahead until you stop hearing things that sound spoilery. Don't watch the finale. What's wrong with you? It's been, like, two months. Actually, by this time, it'll been almost three. Yeah. Because this is six weeks out. I had to I had to get my audience hate out, out of my system. Audience hate. Ringtone. <laughs> Can you imagine that ringtone? Audience hate. Audience hate. That's not a good ringtone. Audience hate. It might be a text message sound. I like I like the Zelda to anyway. <laughs> na 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 for text message sounds. That one's great. We'll edit that out. Probably. Okay, so Zelda aside, the thing I was going to say was that this episode made me super nervous for what happens like in the in the interim between series uh, seasons where, you know, he's undercover and the whole thing because like fucking Jake can't keep it together during a goddamn heist episode. He's in the ceiling and Holt's like, "Are you in my ceiling?" and Jake's like, "No. What? What is wrong with you?" Like, look, I get it. Rule of funny, whatever. But I was just like sitting there just like shaking my head, being like, "What are you doing?" His response to being told that he's doing something wrong is generally, "No. Uh." <laughs> That's verbatim. Certainly, certainly at this point in the season. And so like for us like Jake's character arc radically shifts after the bet. Yeah. And and it's it's no more obvious than stupid dumb shit like this. Well, so for one thing the stakes here are really low. I mean, they seem, you know, high cuz it's there's a thing, there's a conflict, but like his direct superior has caught him in the ceiling and like <laughs> he can't exactly move without being heard. So he could either stay there for the rest of his life or admit that he's, you know, in the ceiling. That's fair. Let's talk about heists and capers. We talked earlier about Terry lowering Amy into the office, into Holt's office. A direct Mission Impossible 1 yeah, reference. That couldn't have been more like, da na na na. <laughs> Not a very good rendition of the Mission Impossible theme, I must admit. Okay, that was my flourish sound from like using the Zelda tone. Okay. Oh, I'm aware. It's going to show up a number of times in this episode. That doesn't mean it's from Mission Impossible. No, it, that's it. Everyone knows the Mission Impossible. Dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. 
every high school band has played that song. Come on. Yes. But anyway, the point is, let's talk about Heist and Capers, because Carl has watched way more Leverage than me. I've watched all of Leverage. I've only seen the first season, which that's I enjoyed. A, that's a lot of Capers. A lot of heists. Yeah. I was going to say the whole... So many schemes. The second half of the episode feels very Ocean's Eleven. Well, they found the energy of the thing they wanted to do. They found the heart of the caper because that's the point at which Jake starts having an actual plan rather than just <laughs> doing random shit and trying to get Gina to figure out how to, you know, steal stuff for him. But there is like, there's also like moments where there's a trope called undercover when alone. And there's a couple of moments where like Jake, I think, is sort of overdoing it for, it's like, it's almost like too obviously sitcom like, when he's Herman and he rolls his eyes when Holt catches him, I'm like, there was no reason for that. He might have not wanted to be caught so quickly. Fair enough. Uh, and I think that he, you know, he was supposed to get caught, but he probably kind of wanted it to work. Like, <laughs> Holt Holtz says in a way that I really liked, which was, you've been correctly estimated. And you know what? This episode actually kind of proves that Holt is right. Holt correctly estimates Jake. It's not until Jake starts doing the team player thing that Holt keeps telling him to do all the time that Jake is actually able to best him. Well, yeah, but Jake, Holt did not at all expect him to be able to do that. You're right, because Holt does say, how did you talk them into helping you? Uh-huh. You're right, you're right. And I he see- was impressed by his solution. <laughs> Which was to give Holt everyone's paperwork. <laughs> really, once they click into caper mode... They get a lot more of the energy in. Mm-hmm. I think it's because they finally have background music and there isn't so much friggin' dead sp- air in in the second half of the episode. Yeah. I think also, like, it stops being purely pairs. We start seeing more, like, sort of, like, pinball, like, where it's, like, a couple and then, a co- like, like, bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce. And then there's, like, a hundred royal babies which was great i loved that sequence so much that sequence had intense choreography seriously that was incredible i kind of hope that we get to see like a full like wide angle version of that on the dvd extras because that was just a really cool scene you guys just really cool i really appreciate cool stuff and that was one of those things plus if you rewatch the episode as many times as i have actually all the stuff that jake says is going on in his like caper explanation like, welcome to my end game is is actually happening you can see uh terry behind Holt. you can see rosa like dip like dodging past it's actually kind of cool welcome to my end game is the favorite is my favorite part of a caper i have uh <laughs> i played exactly one session of the leverage rpg which is really it seems like a really fun time but the last stage of one of those sessions is the end game where you invent a lot of stuff that you did back during the episode and say, I did this the whole time, so I have more advantages now. We totally planned this. <laughs> My favorite thing in that is that like Jake is playing it super smooth and then ends up undercutting himself with the handcuffs. Like I know that sounds like a stupid thing to really like, it feels so in character, especially given the, are you in my ceiling? No. <laughs> just help. And then later, just Herman, your friendly neighborhood janitor. Just pushing trash around. <laughs> he has like a Canadian accent. Me? He like No, Herman. Oh. Not you. I don't, definitely don't have a Canadian accent. But Herman has like, he has something that seems like a Canadian accent. And 
For some reason, Jake thinks that he, like, pushes trash around. This is his idea of a janitor, a Canadian <laughs> who pushes trash around with a broom. God. This is not a man who can keep his apartment clean. This is not a man who can keep his apartment. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, But, okay, we've. I feel like we've ragged on this episode a lot. Let's talk about some of the good stuff. I was uh, talking about some of the good stuff. Let's keep talking about good stuff. We Herman didn't... lives in my soul. Like, okay, but I love that, J- that Herman puts his mustache on Holt. It's just, and Holt just lets him. Like, there's there's such, like... There, there's a certain element to their relationship in this episode of Holt just not believing that what's happening is <laughs> happening and therefore not being able to respond to it. And, like, I can't blame him because the entire, like, the entire precinct is just, like, this crazy... It's, like, this weird bizarro version of itself where everyone's in costume and there's bananas and 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 hillary clinton is making out with kim jong-un like come on the very first thing we see in this episode is two halves of a horse fighting each other which is hysterical i love every costumed extra in this episode every single one was great the banana was great the royal baby sister steve was great like um and even when they're in costume which was great like all of their various, like, Rosa as, um... A bone person. No, no, no. Amy's the bone person. Oh, Rosa. Rosa's, Rosa's the bride of Frankenstein. Yes. And Amy's the scene of the crime. Thank you, Diaphenia, for figuring that out. Because I wouldn't have figured it out on my own. I'm pretty sure she just rolled around in some tape. <laughs> She's the scene of the crime. And Jake is keeping his royal baby costume from, like, his, like, dramatic flair of He didn't have time to make a costume. Wait, he should have been Herman. I guess he would rather be the one that worked. Terry is salt and pepper. Hitchcock is... was Hitchcock? He's Rambo. No, Scully's Rambo. Oh, Hitchcock. I'm supposed to know everything. No, he's the, he's he the stays bone the bone person. person. He yeah. stays the bone person. You're right, you're right, you're right. He stays the skeleton. He hasn't had time to buy one of his two $25 suits yet. Gina's the police officer. Yeah. Which was hilarious. I think she's like a sexy cop. But she's not, I don't think she, well. It's I, not sexed up, but it's definitely a police officer costume, and I'm pretty sure there's shorts. The kind, fancy shorts like Jennifer Anderson would wear? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't say she was a slutty cop. Which, by the way, I, I appreciate that, like, Amy and Jake's banter, right, at the, where she's like, not the girls feel like they have to dress slutty. He's like, that's the worst part. Please make them stop. I don't know. I just I really like that because I've had that conversation multiple times. You don't dress up as a sexy tree. Yeah, I definitely don't dress up as sexy maple tree. Either way, cypresses are much more attractive. I, I'm not having this conversation. <laughs> what? Are you? I am not talking about which tree is sexiest. <laughs> are you arborist? Is that what's happening here? Stop accusing me of being ists that don't exist. <laughs> but we did, we did talk about like Holt and Jake. That dynamic is super great and pretty much on point the entire episode. Even with us saying that there was too much dead air in this episode, Jake and Holt's dynamic is super, super on point. I really liked watching them interact in this because they're still at that combative stage. Yeah. And once Jake realizes that he needs to play to Holt's expectations of him, he goes so far over the top. He's like the the ultimately absurd version of himself his plan is to put birds in the air in the air ducts and he got those birds by chasing them and practically hitting them with a loaf of bread (laughs) holding a sack in the other hand not not to mention when he's having when while terry and boyle are are taking holt's phone and dusting it for prints to write down the numbers that they would cover Jake is distracting Holt by being like, can we call a truce? I, and Holt's like, this is just getting 
sad. Like, that's his exact words. Like, Jake is so fully playing into Holt's expectations of him that it's like... Like it's it, even even when he turns it around, he's like, "Oh no, I was I was letting you save face." It's I'm not losing. That too is playing into Holt's expectation that he would be a sore loser, right? And it's so it doesn't get hurtful until until Christmas, where Holt's expectations of Jake versus where Jake is starting to feel like he is start to feel disparate or divergent, divergent, I guess. But I think. On some level, like, in retrospect, I was thinking about that scene where they're in the uh, break room together. And I was thinking, this is, it's almost insulting. Like, I mean, it is insulting. It's meant to be insulting. But it's like, it's almost insulting to the point of being hurtful. To be fair to Holt, I agree with you. But to be fair to Holt, the guy who might be his best detective is spending the entire day trying to be a criminal. But Jake guarantees, in with all seriousness, in the beginning of that the episode... He'll, that he'll get all his work done? Yeah, and he does. I'm sure he does, but he's we still... We never see him doing it. <laughs> he's still a cop play-acting as a criminal. That's still probably pretty uncomfortable for a police captain to watch, even if he agreed to it in the first place. Let's, uh, let's talk about Terry and Rose's dynamic, because I really liked this, and one of the things I... It struck me when I was watching it today before I came, came over here to do the recording is... That Terry says to Rosa, you play all tough, but I bet you're a real softy down down in, like, in the center. I'm like, wait a minute. Is he projecting his own personal... He it- absolutely is. Oh, he's totally doing that. And he, like, thinks, he thinks that this will make them be friends, even though he's mocking her about it. A little bit, yeah. He's teasing her about it, but that's definitely... like Terry's definitely projecting, like, 100%. Like, everything that Terry says to Rosa is almost exactly what Terry is. Like, down to the sensitive artist history we talked about this in 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 the episode with the art but like the the point is that there there are obvious parallels between the characters and purely like narrative structure but then terry takes it to a whole different level where he's like we're the same but not saying that and it's really interesting like i just really like their dynamic i liked how he kept like kneeling her i like that she both like was and wasn't rising to his like sort of challenge she was keeping it going yeah yeah yeah. and uh, she's a kind of a terrible liar we were talking about this last time yeah like her techniques for pretending that you know she did something super bad are i don't know they they strung terry along but i think in real life they wouldn't really work mm-hmm. like her just saying no matter what he says immediately that whatever she did was worse like <laughs> which it wasn't all she did was beat up some ballerinas and go to ballet school like that that's... is not as bad as burning down a church <laughs> like straight up arson is definitely not the same as quitting your high school to go to the american ballet academy uh, though you did point out that one really cool thing we see in this episode is rosa straight up do the takedown on tarzan yeah it was tarzan yeah she goes like full vulcan nerve pinch yeah, I mean, she grabs him, like, by the throat or shoulder or something and just takes him down. Yeah. It's a very... That requires a lot more force than the style of takedowns that Amy does. Mm-hmm. Like, she... What Amy always does is she goes at, like, knees or something at unnatural angles, which will take people down very easily. But Rosa just friggin' stops that guy's momentum and lets his legs carry him out from under him. And that takes a lot of strength. That is not an easy thing to do. And Terry can tell. Like, Terry could have done that easily. Because, like, I mean, Terry could have stood in front of the guy and he would have bounced into another state. <laughs> but what t- Terry really underestimates is how friggin' physically difficult it is to be a ballerina. It is not, like, 
poncy and it is not for the weak of heart. No, uh, if you've ever met a ballet dancer, which I, my personal trainer is an ex-ballet dancer, actually, they are basically nothing but muscle. They're just giant, giant human beings of corded, corded muscle. Not that giant. That's true. They're very actually quite tiny and slim. But you know what I mean? Like, they're one giant muscle is what I meant to say. I also feel, the thing I feel about the Rosa and Terry dynamic here is that while it plays very well in this episode, it wouldn't be sustainable for their ongoing character dynamic. You're right. And we only really get them in, like, tastes from here on. We get them in multi-person groupings. Yeah, they're There's flourishes. a uh, Terry Boyle-Rosa episode coming up. Here they're kind of establishing some care, some ways that they interact, but that they can't continue. Which is, it's weird they do that in like the main plots here in a number of ways. But then at the same time they're establishing a bunch of jokes they're going to bring back over and over again. Yeah, this episode sets up tons of stuff that like comes back constantly or at least consistently. Let's talk about the first one, the sex tape jokes. No, let's talk about that last. Let's talk about Terry's, his, his Jake's crush on Terry's strength. So after Jake falls out of the ceiling, he's hurt in a lot of different ways and, like, sprained his shoulder and wrist and also bruised his brain. And then he tries to say something to Terry and it comes out mumbled. And he's just, like, falls over into him. And Terry lifts him up by the armpits and puts him in a chair. Like a child. First of all, that's like a child. And doesn't he say in this episode, Jake, I love you like one of my own daughters. And Jake says, really? (laughs) Really? Which, honestly, when I first saw this episode, I said that right along with Jake. Like every every other time I watch this episode, I say, really? Right along with Jake. I'm pretty sure he doesn't. But this is the episode directly after I was so worried about my own kids, I forgot to be taking care of my stupid grown-up kids. (laughs) That happened in the previous episode. (laughs) So it makes sense that maybe he does love Jake like one of his own daughters. Um, Yeah, no. No. But we talked about this several, several episodes ago, and I'll bring it up again. Andy Samberg is like my size. Like, I'm 5'10", and I'm like, Andy Samberg can't wait. He's probably five foot ten and maybe like one seventy, probably. Like, there's not that's not a huge and like Jake's kind of slumped over into like dead weight mode there. So yeah. it's like he picked up like almost two hundred pounds of human being, like no big deal. Yeah, that's incredible. Fucking Jesus Christ, Terry Crews, how fucking strong are you? He's very very strong. Basically, any time. Terry does something ridiculously powerful. He has the same kind of look of kind of covetous adoration. Yes. He wishes he were that powerful. And it's really interesting knowing that they've been working together eight years and Jake has never lost that sense of like, dear God, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Like, that's great. I like the like, I like that. I don't know. I just like that. That like, you know. Even someone you've known for a long time, you you end up finding yourself always in awe. And you see that kind of continuing appreciation with his friendship with Gina, Mm -hmm. which also gets introduced as a big thing this episode. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't say they've been friends forever, but I think they knew at this point in the season that they had been friends forever because Jake knows most of Gina's friends somehow. They say the same thing is interesting about her friend 
What's her dog her has lupus. Her dog has lupus. That, that's her friend's name. Her dog has lupus. No, her friend's name is Natalie. Her oh, water right. broke during the middle of the dance marathon thing. He, he was like, oh, she, Natalie had her baby. And she's like, you know Natalie? Jake and Gina's extended friendship is introduced here. He kisses her on the forehead. This is, I think, the first time we see him be physically affectionate with someone. I don't think he's hugged anyone on the show before her. He kisses, whatever, he kisses Gina on the forehead and it's kind of like, <laughs> it's hysterical because he's like, what does your face taste like? <laughs> That's just such a great line. But like, I think you're right. That is, that is something you can only say to someone if you've known them forever. Honestly, I think a big part of it is that the writers have a tendency to just put their actors like real stuff into the show. And so like, you end up seeing, you end up seeing Terry's like, ver- Terry Cruz's various sides because Terry Crews can do stuff, and so Terry Jeffords is multifaceted in an interesting and really fun way. Andre Brower is sort of great at keeping the um, straight face. And he's good at pretending to be a cop. Yes, we've seen that from him a few times <laughs> at this point. That's his life experience. <laughs> so he's, he's got this. Andy Samberg and Chelsea Peretti have been friends since they were younger. Yep. Jolo Truglio and Andy Samberg have also been friends for a long time. So that has to feed into the Charles-Jake dynamic as well. I can't imagine it not feeding into that as well. Knowing that they were, they've were they been friends in real life since they were younger, it was just a natural thing to sort of just add it into the show. Just like, I don't know, I I think that kind of stuff is really cool. I like that they just threw that in there. Less details for people to have to remember about people who aren't them. Can we talk about, I have in my notes here, um, the setup for Super Dan. Which is Sister Steve. Rosa's continuous mocking of this poor schlub she brought in who was involved in a crime in an embarrassing way. A royal baby who was pretty short mugged him. And Rosa's entire, entire... Interaction with him is just laughing at him. Even when he's like, you know, you're not supposed to mock me. Yeah, she 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 does the Ralph Wiggum laugh. The ah which just cracks me the hell up. And this sets up Super Dan, who comes back in Full Boil, which is an episode in which Amy and Rosa mercilessly mock a guy wearing a cape. like And his underwear on the outside. It's just a kind of lack of empathy that leads to un, uh, unprofessionalism. The last thing I have here is the sex tape jokes, because I love them. And mm-hmm. I love them. I They become a recurring joke. In fact, they come back in the finale of all places. Do they come back in between there? Oh, Tactical they come back Village. in Broken Feather. Yeah, there's definitely at least one in Broken Feather, and there's definitely the start of one in in Tactical Village that yeah. gets sort of throttled out because of Teddy's arrival. <laughs> Ironically, uh, and we'll talk about that scene when we get to it, but sex tape jokes. Um, kind, sober, and fully dressed is the first. Yeah. And then he brings it back. Like, he, he's going... He does. He was supposed to do it again once in the last scene. He was... Uh, I'm sorry about tonight. That's the first one. Yeah. And, and then, then she says, it's not your fault. I was terrible. Right. Then he, he goes and he goes for the second. And that was apparently improvised. She says... Uh, Melissa Fumero talked about how that was an improvised moment in, in an interview that she did. So the thing about the second one is it's much better than the one they had scripted. I'm sorry about last night is is kind of boringly obvious. Yeah. The second one, it's not your fault I was terrible, is much funnier. Yes. And then, and the, then she just like 
blindly smacks him. She, you see her like reach back and smack him without looking, which is awesome yeah. because that's that's the mark of excellent. Just a great cast is that that ensemble chemistry is right there. And then the last one is uh, it was slightly less unbearable with you. And she turns around before he can say anything because Andy Samberg is like, ah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, don't. <laughs> yes, exactly. She cuts him off at the nose. So can you Can you imagine that scene without those improvisations? It would have been really embarrassingly sincere and jokeless. It would have been like schmaltzy, this was the moral of our story. Yeah, it would have been too too it, obvious. Instead, it's her resolutely continuing to give a friendship <laughs> speech despite the constant <laughs> harassing interruptions which, of her idiot coworker. Which is a great parallel because Boyle was able to give his sincere speech without any. The, the difference is that Amy's Amy being sincere, while great, is also like a little too intensely sincere. I think mm-hmm. because Amy's everything is a little too intense. I deeply, deeply identify with that. But Boyle's is Boyle's sort of saccharine sincerity is part of his entire character. Like that's the point of his character. Yeah, <laughs> at least certainly at this point. But also, his speech had jokes in it. Like, right, because it's like the kids, the big kids throw the eggs at you and you run away together and the boards of, the boards, the bonds of friendship are forged in Halloween adversity, I think yeah, is the exact like, line. His idea of a good time is r- running away from bullies, bullies. his friends. God! That is a hilarious and telling character moment. Yes. Whereas Amy's is just like, oh, I was wrong, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it is definitely too moralizing for, for the show and for, for any comedy, really. I want to talk about the three-peat because... I love that the second two are improvised. And so she hits him without looking at him. And that's great. Super great. Like, just chemistry. That's perfect. And then the third is that she knew he was going to go for the three-peat. And she stops him before he can say anything. And she stops him without looking at him. Yeah. And the the thing that... Um... Andy Samberg even reacts in a way that is both improvised and completely Jake. He goes, yes. okay. In exactly the voice he will do again, like, many, many more times. And the thing about this improvisation is that it's both totally, you know, magically clicking in space and chemistry, but it's also totally coming from the characters. It's more the characters than it is Andy Samberg and Melissa Fumero. You know, we were we were talking in sort of the pre-conversation about how like that's a nice contrast to at the cold open for the vulture. I feel like I feel like Jola Truglio went off script or they were they went into an improv section and I feel like everyone's character sort of starts cracking because or they start breaking out of their characters because there's this moment where he's like <laughs> he says he says she had her hip replaced and it was so the torque on it had that. serious torque. Yeah. That's not the way that Boyle brags about sex. No, and Jake Jake slash Andy's reaction there is like this like squinting, like vaguely disgusted, like hands covering his ears, and then his the ending for that is that is nobody's fantasy. <laughs> Having sex with a transformer. Yes, and I love Jake would know better than that. Yes, and it just is so funny and it's also to me like where they're closest to just fully breaking out of character the only other time i can think of where i feel like because i feel like andy sandberg holds it together because duh snl but like and obviously andre brar holds it together the most (laughs) but i feel like the only other time i can think of where i 
think Andy Samberg was co- closest to just totally just losing it is um is in the party <laughs> where he's telling the corgi, do not ruin this for us. If you watch that. It's also in Charges and Specs where he's where he's yelling about everyone's mother. <laughs> yes, when he's yelling at Podolsky and like the commission and he's like <laughs> Yes, he's definitely breaking character. And like here's here's why I love that stuff. Because because the office taught me one thing, if nothing else, which is that if you see in the version that goes to air a scene where one of the actors is about to break character, that means that was probably the best take they could get. Out of like dozens. Yes. They give up after a point. Because every single time, just everyone does what I just did, which is just like turns into a flaily octopus person and like has to, everything has to stop. I, I heard recently that there's a scene in Broken Feather where the cameramen kept breaking. So they had to keep refilling because the cameramen were laughing too much. What? What would, it, what would that have been? Uh, that was Iago. That makes sense. I could also see that that was probably why the ending of the bet is cut short in the air version. Not just for time. Right, because no one could, could keep it together with the stripper <laughs> dancing on them. Yes. And that's why, like, if you if you watch that and if you watch, like, any of the – look at any of the promo materials around the bet. They, they have, like – There is the, – They have, like, the, the stripper, like, having pushed – Jake over onto Amy. There is definitely way more of that dance on film somewhere. And we just will never get to see it, or hopefully we will, God willing. But like, I, you know that they were all freaking out. We are to- taking, we're not even talking about the Halloween anymore. Bringing this back, they are all 100% character in that scene. And even better, you're right. First of all, as an as actors, Melissa Fumero knew that Andy would go for the three peat because he could have left he could have let it alone. It would have felt incomplete. Comedy is about going for going for the three usually. But like she knew he would go for the three peat. She knew where he would go for the three peat and she knows how to cut him off. I don't know, it's super satisfying for me as like somebody who enjoys comedy and who enjoys sort of technique of acting to see people not only just like really living in the scene, but able to do that. And like really trust in the ensemble to make it happen. That's great. Like you he knew he knew to go for the three peat, but he also figured she would stop him. That's great. That's so great. That's so great. Ugh. I just like it so much. You don't understand. Like, as somebody who's been like, I've been attending a lot of comedy lately and I've been really reading up on it. I just find this really interesting. Okay. Um Cool. Thanks for joining us, you guys. This was super fun. I hope you enjoyed this too. So cut, turn in next week for 48 hours. Uh, until then, I'm Carl. My name is Arthi, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.